we're talking about whores and pornography. I mean, where's this podcast going? We better start this over. <laughs> With George Nevis here. And Jeff Heller, too. Hurrah. Here we go. We did it. <laughs> Woo, one take. Hey, all right. One take. I like it. I'm proud of us. So this episode is all devoted to horror and horror stories, as several of our Patreon members had suggested we do. And I think we have to set some ground rules first for how we talk about horror, which is, um, first of all, this is a countdown of our favorite and least favorite Horror characters and horror franchises. I want to tell you right now, I'm kind of scared. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so I, I'm, I'm here with You're the sh- lights on, all of them, in the whole house, even the rooms I'm not in, on. Is, are the horror stories scaring you, or is the thought of us actually being listened to by all of our 30 adoring fans terrifying you, George? Hey, you're putting more pressure on me now! <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, one thing just to clarify first is I don't know about you, George, but for me personally, I didn't go with titles because I figured like House of Secrets versus House of Mystery, Creepy versus Eerie, they're kind of sort of the same thing most of the time. So I tried to stick to characters. I don't I don't know if yours was the same on oh, that. Oh, there's going to be some Silver Age fans that can be mad at you for that line, but... Ooh, well, they're, they're not the same, you know, especially like I'm going to talk about. Oh, I are you walking it back on, now? I'm going to try to. I don't want to offend anybody yet. Well, you know, Let's save you know, that for it, later. It is the same in a sense that they're anthology t- titles. They don't have main yeah. characters. Have, there's a there's a, a story with a twist ending at the end. So in that and sense, they generally it is. Yeah, and they generally use the same writers and the same artists. You know, across both liberally. Um, with those titles. But you're right. I, there were certain characters that were limited to one versus the other. You know, if you particularly love Kane more than Abel, and I do, that might make a difference for you. But generally speaking, if you love one, you love the other. So I didn't want to give them two places on a top five. Though I did choose a character from House of Mystery who will be on my list at one point. And I bet you chose someone from House Spoilers! of Secrets. Spoilers! Don't get, hey, don't give, me, don't give me the ending. Don't go in that room. Don't do it. <laughs> I already told you I'm scared. <laughs> and then and in terms of, you know, what is horror? How do you define horror? Because it's a really nebulous idea. So, like, for example, um, if you read Sandman, um, Sandman has horror elements. You know, he goes to hell for an entire storyline and fights Satan. But I wouldn't really call it a horror comic. I don't think it really follows the format and the genre loyally and faithfully, if that makes sense. Mm. Horror. I I do I, I you know I don't know how to really define horror. I mean, there's horror like you said, there's horror stories, there's horrible right. there's horrible stories, <laughs> there's, <laughs> there's there's horror characters, the traditional, you know, and there's also yep. just, I mean, that there's there's a cult, you know, there's it's different. I mean, I, yeah. I to tell you the truth, I didn't really ever get scared of anything that I ever read except for one comic. 
which okay, is, I cannot which wait is to one hear about them, that later. Which is one of them in this list. The rest of them, okay, I'm like, now oh, they're yeah, spoiling things. Well, no, I didn't tell you which one, but yeah, it's but for the most part, you know, you're reading something on a piece of paper, and I just I I can't get that into it where I'm actually scared. But I I totally agree with you, and I was going to bring that up too. I'm glad you went there. That I don't think horror comics usually have the ability to shock and scare you. I think instead, what usually defines a traditional horror comic is that you have one or more characters who comes in contact with the occults or, you know, demons or monsters or something supernatural, and there is a shock ending, um, usually involving somebody's death. And I think the better ones, they excite me, they thrill me, they give me a rush. But no, I've never been scared by a horror comic, and I wonder if anybody has. Oh, yeah, I have. That's <laughs> Really? Oh, you're going to talk about that? Yeah. <laughs> give us your comments, guys. Let us know what horror comics made you poo-poo your pants. Why am I talking like that? You know, one thing I'm really thankful for, honestly, right now, just realizing this, I am glad we're both from New York because I live in Ohio right now. And do you know how they pronounce H-O-R-R-O-R where I am right now? No, how? So generally speaking, Cleveland does not have an accent um, because in the early days of radio, Cleveland was sort of the center of it all. So everybody kind of picked up a Cleveland accent. But for some reason, they say whore. <laughs> what? So, well, here's here's the real problem with this. I first became aware of this as a teacher when I have students saying how excited they were they're going to be working in whorehouses for Halloween. And I was like, what? I double take. What did you mean by that? Do I need to call six nine six kids? Oh, you meant H O R R O R horror. Oh boy, whore for real whore. Are you are you and I put my leg. I legitimately wonder how many of our listeners are going to make comments that we keep about how funny it is that we say horror as we're discussing this. But that's how New Yorkers say it. I mean, I thought it was always horror. Me too. Wh- horror, and I swear, I mean, I'm not this. This is like universal in Ohio. It's insane. <laughs> going to well, grab me a can of I, pop, run a sweeper, <laughs> and listen to some horror stories. I got I to gotta call one of my uh, Ohio friends and, and ask her about horror. I swear this is real. I might get slapped through the phone, actually. <laughs> I better not. <laughs> Can you tell me your horror stories? What? <laughs> Jeff, you're killing me. <laughs> I try. Hey, it's it's horror. I got to kill somebody, right? <laughs> <laughs> those, those puns are going to kill me. That, that's for sure. <laughs> oh, boy. Yep. <laughs> all right. All right. That's enough for that. Let's all get, right, so Jared, let's get to the scary part. of... of... <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I, I I think in a way definitions of horror work a lot like that Supreme Court justice's definition of pornography, which is that he didn't know quite how to how to quantify it, but he knows it when he sees it, and that might be what we have to work with on this one. Well, we're talking about horrors and pornography. I mean, where's this podcast going? <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, I think we just found what I'm going to begin the episode with. <laughs> we better start this over. <laughs> Never. <laughs> All right. No second take. <laughs> All right, All right sir. So, so we, sir, we've got our definitions of horror worked out, and um, you have your Lynn Ween choice picked out. Actually, I do, but I mean, you know, oh, right. I, okay. I have five worst, five best, but I, they're not in any particular order, except for the one that scared me. That's number one. But for the most okay. part, yeah, I, actually, if you want my list of what best or, or worst. Actually, oh, don't you give it away yet. Don't you give it away yet. Well, Len Wein is one of the best. He had to be on this list, as the assignment said, right? 
I mean, he's on the list anyway because he, you know, legend, man. <laughs> well, you specifically told me we had to put Len Wein in this thing, right? Well, what, what's up with Len Wein? What, what's your uh, what's your take on him? I mean, what's your obsession with him? My obsession with him? Yeah. What do you mean? Len Wein. What do you want to talk about him? You told me we had to include Len Wein in this thing. I did? You told me, <laughs> Jeff, we're doing horror stories and we're doing How Low Ween. So Len Wein is number four in my list. That's how low he is. How low Len Wein. Oh, that's terrible. That's it. <laughs> that got to get cussed. <laughs> Stop the camera. <laughs> so this oh. is our special Halloween special. How, how, it's number how four in my list. Okay, all right. Halloween, right? Halloween. Yeah. Now the real trick is I told you he's number four in my list, but I didn't tell you which list he's on. Well, why? Why wait? It's another thing we should explain on this one. Is I don't know about you, George. I don't know about everybody listening, but for me. When Halloween comes around, there are two types of horror movies I like to watch. And one is my favorite horror films, and one is my favorite B-horror films, the ones that are so bad that they're really fun to enjoy. And that's why I suggested that for this list, we're counting down our five favorite horror characters and franchises, and our five least favorites that are hopefully so bad they're good. You're being optimistic. <laughs> there's a lot of bad uh, bad properties characters that I don't continue to read because once is enough see I never hear you get negative about like comics this is exciting you're always defending <laughs> that that's funny <laughs> you know what you know, I, I, what? <laughs> there's, you know there's books that you know there are books not necessarily horror but there are books that I, I'll reread because I want to see if it was as bad as I remember it. I do that. And, I absolutely do that. It's like it's like you know, I want my brain wants to make it right, so I want, I want to read it until it gets better. <laughs> so that's a perverse way of reading comic books. But I've no, done but it, it shows it shows your optimism as a fan, and like I love this about you. Like you know, most of the disagreements we get into on this podcast, only two and a half episodes in, is I love the fact that. When we talk trash about a creator, you always want to see the good in them. So, like, for example, if we're talking about Vince Coletta or if we're talking about Jim Shooter or uh, if we're talking about Marv Wolfman, you're always sort of in their corner championing them. And I respect that about you. I'm surprised that Marv and Wolfman I, made that cut. I mean, I thought he was revered. Well, we're talking Christ on Infinite Earths, man. I mean, that, was, uh, that wasn't going to go in his favor. Oh but I, you, you know, because... We're on the same Facebook groups, a lot of them. You know, I get to see, I'm sure you see stuff that I post to those groups, and I see stuff that you post. Mm -hmm. And I think you put it um, best, and this kind of helped me understand your thinking more. There was um, a comment made about Frank Robbins the other week. And your response, you, you began defending his line work and how he does certain things, but where you ultimately went was, he made it into the industry when other people didn't. Mm -hmm. And that in itself is worthy of recognition. And I thought that was a really cool point. Yeah, the rest of us are wannabes. Right. You know. The only thing is I, I was a little concerned about you on that one because do you remember what the comment was you were responding to when you said that? From what I understand, I came late to the game. They were uh, making fun of him for like a, a whole straight day. <laughs> and and right, they kept starting new threads just about <laughs> Frank Robbins. So, I mean, yeah, but do you remember which comment you were specifically responding to when they, you were defending him for breaking into the industry? What, they called him a bird or something? 
Yes, the yeah. comment was Frank Robbins is a bird, that, and you that, went into this whole thing. That is so, that is so strange. Why a bird? I, I, I don't know. I just I was amazed at your need to defend that. Frank Robbins <laughs> is a bird. Well, he broke into the industry. Hey, man. He any kind of animal he wants to be. He, he made it, you know. He made it. The rest of us, he you did. know, got, got a lot of rejection letters if, if we even tried. So are you ready to get into it? Let's get into it. All right. Do we want to do the top five worst first or the top five best first? I think we or better do, we do the worst. Let's, let's do okay, the worst. Okay, the worst is more fun. Let's, yeah. let's do them. So number five pick. Number five. George, what is the fifth worst horror character or franchise that you can think of? Okay, I'm going to start with Morbius. Introduced Ooh. in Spider-Man 101, 1971. From what I understand, in 1971 is when the Commerce Code relaxed some of their standards, where they allowed certain types of horror elements to be depicted in comic books. So that's when Marvel right. took up the, the mantle and started releasing you know, Dracula, Werewolf, Frankenstein, those things, because now they're saying, hey, we could do it now. Plus, there's something right. else that I just, I kind of just saw that that kind of coincides with the with comics code relaxing the stance and it doesn't have really a lot to do with horror from what i understand amazing spider-man 96 was the first drug comic book yes. apparently apparently uh harry osborne was taking pills and and the actual the actual government asked stan lee to make a story about drug abuse and when they gave that book to the comic code, the comic code rejected it and said, you can't print this. And they printed it anyway. So Right, because the code didn't specify whether it was a positive message or negative message about drugs, just that you couldn't do drugs. You couldn't talk about drugs. Yeah. So, so what happened is that after that, they realized, hey, you know, we printed the comic book and the world didn't end. So we could, <laughs> we could go further. And I guess that, that helped to soften the stance of what we could read and, and what we couldn't read. I think there's there's another reason for it too, actually. I, I suspect, I don't know this for a fact, but I think that Warren Publications and, and Erie um, Publications as well might have played a part in this because those were um, publishers that realized that by printing in a magazine format, they could circumvent the code. So suddenly Marvel and DC are losing sales to um, Creepy and Eerie. And especially in 1970, when suddenly they have this, the flood of Spanish artists, mm -hmm. um, Warren was majorly on the rise in, in taking up premium real estate on the racks, and Marvel and DC could not compete with them because they were on a different playing field. Well, I mean, from what I understand, the magazines couldn't be sold to minors. So if the target audience was still, let's say, 8 to 13, you still got the comic books outselling magazines, at least the kids. And well... First of all, I wonder how often that age restriction was actually enforced. At the <laughs> you, you know, right. you're right. You're right. I, I had a lot yeah. of I had a lot of bad magazines in my house growing up. My parents didn't care. <laughs> I mean, I'm thinking they were more concerned about the Playboys personally, but um, but also on top of that, I, at least Marvel was aiming for that more mature audience. You know, they they were trying to hit the college crowd while DC was still stuck looking catering to adolescents. So I think Marvel would have cared more about that and. They were very quick to adapt to horror once the code relaxed, as you talked about. So anyway, let me get back. Morbius, 1971, Spider-Man 101. He's such a crappy character, okay? They couldn't <laughs> they couldn't come up with a vampire. So they came up with a biochemist that had to, to try a cure a, a rare blood disease. And he uses a combination of vampire bats and chemicals and electroshock therapy 
to keep alive. I mm-hmm. mean, that is just so dumb. I mean, I, I admit, I'm not a Spider-Man fan, but I'm like, that's the best you could do? I don't. I, mean, I never saw Spider-Man's kid. origin any better, honestly? He got well, bitten by a radioactive still, bug? I mean, it's like they couldn't make up their mind. It was like, okay, vampire baths, chemicals, and electroshock therapy. Take your pick. <laughs> <laughs> Again, sorry, I couldn't, buy, I couldn't sign off on Morbius. That's not I, I got to ask, because I, I honestly don't know. I'm assuming... Morbius and Man Bat, who came first? That's a good question. Because <laughs> they're I, basically the same character. I, I, I want to say Morbius, but... Someone out there is going to be very mad at me for saying this. Yeah. But, I mean, they're, they're both chemically induced vampires yeah. who then try to use their powers for good ultimately. I guess. I, I think Morbius's look was better. Now, going back to Frank Robbins, you and I were talking about before, I like how Frank Robbins drew Morbius. Hmm. Well, but the stories themselves, I'm not going to fight you on. Well, I mean, I think he was introduced in Spider-Man 101. That's a Gil Kane book, I think. Gil Kane and yeah. Rita inking. So, I mean, look, it, even the art couldn't save it. It was just a stupid concept. And yet, <laughs> it has legs because, I mean, I think he appeared in a movie and he's been around for a while. It's just the whole concept... I mean, look. I know you couldn't do a vampire, but it just it didn't it didn't do it for me. So that's number five. For well, me. and yet Marvel pulled off two of Dracula, didn't they? Well, that's a whole different story, you know. That, that's apples and I'm oranges, saying, and I'm insulted you could actually put those two properties in the same sentence. No, no, no. I'm not. In, I, this is not <laughs> me hating on Wolfman. I promise you. But I, I'm just saying that Marvel could do a vampire. They weren't restricted from doing a vampire, were they? Well, this came in 71, Tomb of Dracula came in 1972. Mm. So again, it, yeah, I don't it, know. It might be that little area where they're still discovering what they could get away with with the code. But also or the code. just didn't think fans. No, Sorry, they, actually the code said you could, you could depict monsters, you know, of, of Dracula, Frankenstein, werewolf, if they're, if they're consistent with the classic versions. The classic versions oh. of of, uh, of like the Universal stu- Universal monsters, like that. Yeah. So that's why. Meanwhile, it, but they were testing the waters with the crappy Morbius. So I guess. So. Yeah. I, meanwhile, while it was probably a decade later, I I happened to love when um, suddenly Dracula is appearing in the regular Marvel universe and like fighting the X Men and stuff. Like those were good stories. I wish they'd kind of gone there right off the bat. You know, Jeff, you and I love different things. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I, I guess I'm just gonna have to I, I'm gonna have to live with that because I feel like the weakness of the horror ca- ca- uh, characters is when they actually put them in the the regular universe with the superheroes because I always usually felt they, I agree with you I I felt they like, paled they paled, paled Dracula yeah. ha 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 <laughs> that wasn't intentional but I'm saying it, they they didn't compare. So I, I, I just thought I, that was silly when Dracula's trying to fight the Silver Surfer or or a Thor or... or, or wait, did know, Dracula Dracula. fight the Silver Surfer? Actually, the Silver Surfer appeared in one of the Tomb of Dracula comic books. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. I'm not an expert, I, I, but I know he appeared there. I, I think it comes down to tone. I think if you have a, a supernatural um, classic monster appear in what feels like a superhero comic, it's silly. But if you can make it feel like a horror comic with superheroes in it, I think it works. So, like, 
I brought up Dracula before because that moment when Kitty Pride is alone facing Dracula and pulls out a cross and he just laughs at her and goes, that's not going to work. You're Jewish. <laughs> that was actually a legitimately great moment. They're like, you made that up, didn't you? <laughs> it doesn't work. <laughs> I mean, it makes sense. <laughs> uh, it makes sense because they want you to just swallow the premise. Yeah, that's fair. All right, my number five, or you want to talk about Morbius some more? No, that's I, I don't want to talk to, about him the first time. <laughs> so who's number All five? Right, my number you? five, I have a lot more affection for than you do, and it would be way, way higher on my list of worst if it weren't for the fact that they were intentionally being campy and stupid. And that's going to be um, DC's Strange Sports Stories from 1973 to 1974. What, have you what, ever um, heard about these? I did, but... That was a horror book? Sometimes. It alternated. It was sometimes horror. It was sometimes science fiction. It was sometimes just plain weird. But oftentimes they went for the horror genre. Um, because you could almost see the meeting room conversation where somebody was like, we just did these polls of kids. And it turns out they really like sports. So let's make some sports comics. And they like horror. So let's make some sports comics with monsters and demons in them. And so you have <laughs> things like... Um, I mean, the first issue alone, it, it, anyone listening who has never read Strange Sports Stories, just grab an, a copy of the first issue and it's all you need. Because the first story is legitimately surprisingly good when it shouldn't be. It is the devil just decides to challenge this baseball team to a game of baseball and they trick him through baseball like strategy. Like they, they manipulate the rules so he can't possibly win. And it's surprisingly <laughs> interesting. It's such a terrible idea. It makes no sense. But, like, you get into it for a second. You're like, that was brilliant if you know baseball. <laughs> I mean, what year was and then this? The be- <laughs> I mean- 1973. But then wow. the second story is the best of the worst stories in that really, really short run. I'm, I'm going to try to summarize this, and there's no way I'll do it justice. There is a kid who is the descendant of Rip Van Winkle. <laughs> which in no meaningful way figures into the story at all. They say over and over again, oh, you descended from Rip Van Winkle. He takes a nap at one point. It doesn't affect the story, I promise you. And his whole problem, <laughs> he play, he bowls with his friends and he doesn't bowl well and they keep mocking him for it. So instead of either, you know, A, not hanging out with those friends anymore or B, not bowling with them or C, not caring, he makes a deal with Henry Hudson. And by Henry Hudson, I mean the guy who discovered the Hudson River, who, by the way, is now an immortal dwarf. <laughs> Could they throw any more elements? I have no idea. This? Holy crap. <laughs> A dwarf? It's Rip Van Winkle? Really explained. <laughs> Henry Hudson is just a supernatural, undying dwarf. And he <laughs> gives him, like, the natural ability to score perfect games but he gives him one restriction, as in like all classic horror stories. The one thing you must never do is bowl a perfect game because you have to be humble. So you have to throw one round. You have to like, you know, one time ever do a pickup spare. Hmm. And of course, as all horror stories go, the kid's like, nah, I'm going to bowl a perfect 300. Who cares? <laughs> and so as he's about to bowl that last final time, Henry Hudson shows up on the actual lane, but nobody can see him but this kid. He's like, I forbid you from bowling the perfect 300. And if this were a classic horror story, there'd be like some ironic, perverse, twisted punishment for the kid, right? So what happens? 
Instead, Henry Hudson kicks the ball away and he doesn't bowl a perfect 300. And that's the end of the story. Ugh. <laughs> yeah, that that's pretty bad. That is good. You're right. I, like, you know, the writer and the artist were sitting there laughing their butts off about this. Like, I can't believe they're going to let us print this. You know, Jeff, there's sometimes that that you read a story and you could tell the writer didn't give a crap. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, they were just taking a paycheck. <laughs> and and, and, and worse, the editor didn't yeah. care. Because <laughs> usually <laughs> an editor will be on top of you back in the day if you, if you t- try to put in a story that was just dumb. Yeah. Well, if all they were looking for was to mark off two demographics, you know, we did sports, we did horror, there we go. But here's the craziest part, George, is you'd think, you know, a story like that would survive maybe two issues. I mean, Brother Power the Geek, you know, infamously got canceled after two. But, or was there a third one? Or was there a third one? (laughs) Strange sports stories, this was actually the second incarnation of it. There had been an ongoing feature in Brave and the Bold from 1962 to 1963 with the exact same topic. And then they brought it up again later on as a Vertigo title. Like, this cannot (laughs) die for some reason. It's amazing. It was popular. (laughs) Apparently. Made it, I think, like a whole six issues or something. But I got to tell you, I I own the first four issues of that run, and they get read a lot. It is just, even the covers alone are just to die for. It's definitely check it out. Highly recommend it. Wow. I mean, you know, you piqued my curiosity, but yikes. Sports stories. (laughs) (laughs) All right. All right. What's your number four? Number four. Number four, okay. Number number four is Man Thing, but from from Marvel. First introduced. What? Set, yeah, sorry, man. Savage Tale. But there's a reason why, okay. Oh boy. Man Thing. Okay, he he was introduced 1971 in Savage Tales number one, which was a magazine. I right. think they also introduced a few other characters in there, but it was a black and white magazine by by Stanley Thomas Conway and Gray Morrow. Now. Mm-hmm. The reason I pick him is because he's like the Watcher. In every story, he doesn't do anything. He's just a, like a peripheral character. It's like a, a stories Ooh. revolve around him, and he doesn't really do anything until you get scared, and then he burns you, which is maybe the dumbest thing I ever heard. <laughs> Whatever knows fear burns at the man thing's touch. It's just oh, dumb. No. It's just dumb. <laughs> you know, I mean, first of all, everybody has fear. I don't know, except Daredevil. But everybody else has fear. So I don't <laughs> know. I think everybody will burn. But it's just, I, I, the thing is, again, the weakness of it was that he wasn't an actual character or the lead of the series. He was just somebody that was walking around in the swamp, and apparently he was a nexus of of, of parallel worlds or something of that nature but he didn't really he didn't have a personality he didn't have anything he's like a poor man swamp thing and the funny thing is that and the funny thing is he came out he came out the year before swamp thing so he was actually first the only good thing about about man thing that's ever been associated with him is that he had a title called giant size man thing (laughs) And, and it's been immortalized so You'll never Talking forget that. about writers and artists knowing exactly what they were doing and not believing they got away with it. <laughs> so that's my number four. Sorry, man, if I disappointed somebody. Uh, I, I have to defend this one, okay? Um, so first of all, I think I mentioned in previous episodes that Doug Mensch is my favorite writer. Jim Shooter is my third favorite writer. Number two is Steve Gerber. I, I don't think the man can do wrong. And 
He's Man quite good. Thing, yeah. yeah. Man Thing. I mean, what's crazy, too, is the different genres he writes so well. I mean, who would have thought the guy who wrote Man Thing wrote Howard the Duck? It's kind of insane. But I love Man Thing, and he didn't make my list, and I'll explain why in a moment. But what I love about that, yeah, whoever burns the touch of Man Thing is a strange idea. It's also scary because, let's be realistic, we would. You know, if you saw a man thing coming towards you, you'd be afraid, so you'd burn. It takes tremendous courage or guts or whatever not to do that. And it sets him apart from all those other swamp monsters. You got Swamp Thing, you got The Heap, you've got It. Um, man thing at least is different in that respect, but what I really loved about him was how Gerber depicted him. So Swamp Thing is a mutated scientist who knows that, and he's frustrated and angry about it. Man-Thing is completely unthinking. That second-person narration that I, I can't get enough of, horror stories have been doing that since the 1950s, you know, when it says, like, you do this, you do that. Yeah. Um, but what it does is it makes you care about this character who isn't a character. He has very primitive thoughts and responses and isn't cognizant of anything. So much like a wild animal, you don't know what he's going to do in any given issue. Jeff, so you I, watch a story on... Yeah. I, I didn't care about the character. Oh, hold on. Let me try and sell it. Give me one more second, okay? <laughs> what, what I did care about is what, what he does, what Gerber later on does in his book is that he creates stories around around Swamp, uh, the man thing and that area where there's like just people walking by and you get involved with their drama. So in a sense, right. it came off like an anthology series, but it had nothing to do most of the time with man thing. So you got to let me finish my defense here, which is go, that um, go. <laughs> m much like a wild animal who's just there watching, even though Man-Thing doesn't figure into the stories until the end, there's this tension there the whole time of what is Man-Thing going to do this time? Is he going to be sweet and understanding? Is he going to be an agent of justice? Or is he just going to burn a bitch? You know, you really <laughs> don't know what I mean, you care about this character, but you don't know. You have yeah. no idea from any given issue how he's going to respond. Jeff, you're giving him urgency, agency. He had, he had no brain. Right. That's what made him so compelling. But you're saying if he cared and whether he, I mean, he had nothing. He was just a person, walk, a, a, a thing walking around with no brain, no motion, no nothing. When a terrified, shrieking woman wanders in the swamp thing swamp, you know what Swamp Thing's going to do. He's going <laughs> to save her. He's going to take care of her. Okay. When she wanders in the Mad Thing Swamp, you don't freaking know. And I love that. He's an uncharacter. Just like the Defenders were the un-team, he's the uncharacter. Well, I think you love too many things. But anyway, that's, that's my point. <laughs> you want to talk about Vince Coletta again? <laughs> hey, he saved Thor, okay? So anyway, yeah. Oh, boy. <laughs> you Give me your number four. Well, for, I want to explain why Man-Thing didn't make my list, actually. And I bet this is what you liked about him that I disqualify him for. Was Steve Gerber's on record as saying he didn't really like horror comics. So Man-Thing sort of very quickly moved away from being horror and ended up moving into all these other genres that didn't really make sense for the character. And that's why he's not on my list of best horror characters, because he's not really a horror character after those first couple of issues. I will admit that it, it, it was a vehicle for a lot of nice stories surrounding him. There was You did care yeah. about what was going on, but then, again, it came off like an anthology uh, title. Yeah, I and agree with you. Little to do with Man-Thing. Very far from its premise. Again, that's my, yeah. my criticism. It had nothing to do with Man-Thing. It was just, you know, you could have made it a hotel where, where people come in and it's a story and then they leave. So, right, so record, you don't like the character, but you do like his giant-sized man thing. We got that. 
That's not what I said. <laughs> <laughs> but isn't it? <laughs> anyway, what's your number four? All right. My number four is going to piss you off, I think, more than you just pissed me off. So I, I was afraid in the first episode I was going to piss you off. This time I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm going to cross a line. So I, I apologize in advance because this is my Len Wein. Hello, Len Wein. I lo- <laughs> this, you know what? The anticipation is great. So who's number four? Um, I'm going to talk about Len Wein's work on The Phantom Stranger. Oh, hell Which was... Um, Oh, hell no. <laughs> the re the reason why this is on my list is it comes so close to being great and then just gets stupid. So, first of all, Phantom Stranger is an amazing concept for a character. He's never been done quite right. He's a cool character. But more importantly, you've got Jim Aparo on that. And Jim Aparo turns in some of his best art ever for this. Like I agree. Breathtaking, beautiful panels. Yes. But one thing that, because I, I think Wayne's going to come up a lot in this list, you can tell Ween is really uncomfortable at the horror genre. Mm. Especially when he's got an ongoing character. So you can't be, like, killing people every time because the Phantom Stranger is supposed to be a good guy. That's quite a controversial statement. That he's not comfortable with horror. That he's not comfortable with horror fo- from, uh, books. With, he, he's famous. With ongoing characters. He's famous for that. With ongoing characters. I'll have to rebut that later. But anyway. When, when we talk about Swamp Thing later on, this is going to come up again. It's not that he doesn't write them well. It's that he doesn't know what to do with them necessarily because you can't be having murders happen all the time because these good guys are supposed to stop that stuff from happening. So what do you do instead? And the Phantom Stranger borders on being great again and again and again. But each time you can tell three or four pages in, he's not sure what to do. So I'll have some ridiculous conflict come up where the Phantom Stranger literally has to punch his way out of it. You know, in every issue, there's some mortal who somehow knows enough magic that they can, like, contain and control and stop the Phantom Stranger. And then the Phantom Stranger is just punching again and, no, can't do this, must. (laughs) And it reads like a regular superhero comic when it absolutely doesn't want to go that way. And you can almost feel Aparo looking up and like, what are we doing? I thought we were doing a horror comic. What is this? (laughs) You know, I kind of disagree with you. I don't, I don't, I never saw it as him punching his way out. And I think you and I must have different copies of the Jim Aparo books because I thought they were great. But, you know, I will say the reason he didn't make my list is that he suffers from the same thing that Man-Thing does. A lot of the time, he, he was originally supposed to be a character that introduces a story. I mean, mm-hmm. that's the way it was at the beginning of his run. He used to be like Cain and Abel. He would introduce a story and he would do a few things, but he really wasn't the main character. And when they when they made him the main character, I still thought it, it was strong. It's just, but I do see what, what you're saying about you didn't like the punching the punching aspect. It read a lot like the 1960s Spectre stories, where like you've got this super powerful character. So what do you do? You put him in situations where he's not so powerful anymore, and just issue after issue of you know watching the Phantom Stranger sweat out the stupidest of things gets old pretty fast. And it's not really Wayne's fault, and I, I'm going to get into this a little bit later on, is I think Wayne was waiting for the genre to mature. I think he wanted to do more with horror comics than just do the conventional type of storytelling, but he wasn't sure how to do it. And he got th- closer with Swamp Thing. I didn't know he, he actually wrote that book. I, I missed that somewhere yeah. along the line. Yeah, he, he wasn't there from the beginning, but he had a very significant stretch on it, um, and he was working okay. with Aparo, and it should have been a dream team. Well, I have to disagree with you. I, I did like the Phantom. Uh, 
the Phantom Stranger series. I mean, look, a lot of these comic books, the strength is the artwork. And when you have somebody like a Jim Power on it, it's hard to fail. Especially back then, because at the beginning, when he did his early work for DC, his, his artwork was fantastic. It sort of got watered down as it went right. through the years when he started doing Batman. But the, the, the stuff you see in the early 70s is just amazing. But, you know. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that part of it. I just, I think because of how talented Aparo was with a better script, he could have done even more. Like, I imagine Aparo on, like, um, 1960s um, Doctor Strange Strange Tales. You know, nobody was going to outdo Ditko. But I'm just, you know, that kind of stuff, that could have been the level that Len Wein took the scripts to. You know, it could have been about these out there crazy things instead of battling second-rate magicians. Well, I, I'll say this. There's a, there's a, there is a weakness when you put supernatural characters in the same universe with superheroes. Yes. They, they just don't, they don't really combine well. And, and a lot of the, the, a lot of people on my, my worst five, fifth, five list actually has that problem where they're, they're interacting in a world with superheroes. And again, it just does, it just doesn't mix. This is going to tie into my tinfoil hat theory, which I won't give yet. But I'm going to wager a bet that every one of the comics you're thinking of that doesn't play well in the superhero universe was published mm -hmm. prior to 1984. Let me see. Uh, of my fit, worst five, yeah. Yeah. But remember the horror genre when 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 the, when the code relaxes relaxed its uh its hold, that started in '71, and it you can yeah. argue it ended in '79 with the last issue of Tomb of Dracula. So we're only talking about a small window of of, of them, Marvel and DC trying to make this genre work. I, I, I kind of argue that it never really worked, but I mean, they were throwing everything against the wall and seeing what would stick. Well, it, it definitely worked for a short while. You know, the early years, it's probably 71 through 1975, I think, where horror was selling very well. You're talking about four years. I'm, I'm, I'm talking about like something that lasts 10 you know, 15, 20 years, and, and none of these books did. Yeah, but I think, but for five years, horror was a top seller. It wasn't just kind of successful, it was extremely successful. And that makes it significant. And even still, horror did manage to hold on for a while afterwards. House of Mystery went up through the end of 1983. Yeah, those books lasted. Those, those DC yeah. books, the anthology type books did last. I'm going to save my, my tinfoil hat theory. I'm tempted to get into it now, but I have a feeling you're going to set me up really well for it later on. So I'm going to, I'm going to back burner it for right now, and we'll go on to um, your number three. Baron Blood. What is Baron Blood? Baron Blood is a character introduced in Invaders number seven, the book about Captain America, the Torch, and Namor in World War II. It's a period piece. He was introduced in number seven, and as a vampire character, they actually went full force with the vampire character, and they actually tied it into the Tomb of Dracula vampire. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, he'd been bitten by him in the past, and he stayed alive. And he apparently Dracula sent him to go to Europe and terrorize people there. And he became a, a wow. recurring—I know—he became a recurring character against the invaders. And I think he actually met his demise in the John Byrne, Roger Stern run of Captain America uh, later on in the 80s. They brought him back and Captain America ends up killing him, actually decapitating him, which was kind of controversial at the time. 
But uh, the reason I pick him is not that he was horrendous. It's just that, I, again, I feel like when you put a supernatural characters against superheroes, it doesn't really work for me. You know, I, <laughs> it's apples and oranges. And, and I just, I felt like, you know, they should be able to beat him easy, I think. Because, I mean, even, even the Tomb of Dracula series, I noticed a lot of times Dracula was running away at the end. I mean, a lot of times they got the better of him, <laughs> and he's just getting getting away from the skin of his teeth. So th- this is the thing. I, I just feel like once you put these superpowered heroes against something that's just like an occult, or supernatural, it's kind of a mismatch a lot of the time. But again, not that he was a horrendous character. I just don't feel the concept works. So he's number four. And I would argue that's not just limited to horror characters. I think sometimes you create a villain who's so powerful that there's no good way for the heroes to get out of it. Mm-hmm. It's like every time Darkseid shows up, he almost always has to have a totally irrational reason for why he retreats. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's like it's always like, well, I've been dishonored today, or, well, you won honorably and fair and square, so I give up. When he's like, yeah. you know, he's got the Omega Beams, he can end anybody he wants to any time. But, you know, Doctor Doom could use international law to shut down the Avengers in a day if he wanted to. But he's a man of honor, so he can't, you know? It's but anyway, that, that's number true. three. I didn't hate him, but I'm just saying it, I don't felt, I didn't feel like it worked. Well, hold on. I'm, I'm just curious because I, I have never read the – I know of the Invaders. I've never read them before. Um, what's like the, the worst or the, the most awkwardly bad moment where the Invaders are fighting Baron Blood and it just – it does not feel like the right genre? It just – there was too many weaknesses. I mean, once you find these uh, – Found that he's a, a vampire. Well, just find where he is and and you you know destroy him there. So I yeah. just felt like there was it it, it was a, a problem that could have been solved, like in page eight, you know. That's fair. I, I think Dracula in in vampires in general are scariest one against ordinary mortals, and two when the people they're preying upon don't fully understand what's happening. Yeah. If if you know the rules and you've got powers, it's not a fair match. No. Because they, they, they have only, I guess, 12 hours to be or eight hours to be outside. The rest of the time, yeah. they can't be in sunlight. You know, that, there's and there's so holes. many ways to kill them or even just, like, seriously get a hose and do some running water and they can't cross it. <laughs> yeah, that's a whole big rule book, I heard. <laughs> you could get an embargo. Dude, seriously. <laughs> you know, the number it, they should do a Brave and the Bold team up. Dracula and Green Lantern both get defeated by the homeless bum urinating in an alleyway because it's running yellow water. <laughs> oh, <laughs> don't get me don't one. get me started on Green Lantern with the dumbest uh, 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 weakness in the world, yellow. Holy crap! <laughs> it was only marginally better than wood as a weakness. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Oh boy. That's enough for that. Okay, what's your I mean, pick? Look, <laughs> yellow pea wood giant sized man thing where are we going george <laughs> <laughs> no way good all right number three for me i'm going to go to uh gold keys dark shadows from 1969 oh wow um, i am a i'm a huge dark shadows fan I, I don't know george if you ever you know got to watch the show it was huge in the 70s and sort of it's kind of been more forgotten in recent years but um there was a time from like you know late 1960s to I think 1971 that everybody was watching Dark Shadows. It was just the show. And what I what's amazing about that show is it's it's for anyone listening who doesn't know, it's a soap opera that airs, you know, 5 days a week where the main it actually, character it actually is, started as a soap opera and and yeah. it had bad ratings so they introduced 
a, this uh, supernatural element, and it picked up in the ratings. Right. So you've got this undead vampire who's the most appealing of, but not the only main character. And you've got a limited cast, so he can't be murdering people every week. You know, you'll run out of people really, really, really fast. Bummer. He also became a, a fan favorite very quickly. So they started trying to paint him as more of a tragic, misunderstood good guy, which means he can't be murdering random strangers either. So there was a very, very low death count. There really wasn't much traditional horror to it. It was more about attitude. There was a gothic style to it. There was a, a morbid but beautiful, elegant ambiance. And the main character, Barnabas Collins... He's the guy who enters a room and looks at you weird, and that could be creepy enough for it to be the climax of an episode. But he, <laughs> he exuded that style and, you know, Victorian-era class, even though he's from before that time. And the comic understands none of this. So oh. in the first eight issues, you can, tell the artist, you can tell the artist has never, ever seen an episode of Dark Shadows because Barnabas Collins, this restrained, elegant, 40-something-year-old actor... Uh, character is literally running everywhere from scene to scene i'm talking like <laughs> jack kirby style like legs completely far apart arms pumping in a three-piece suit every oh. scene and it you're in like bright garish four colors when it was like this ambient like it, it just it loses all of the style and replaces it with nothing and you know whereas in a soap opera you can have very little occur in an individual episode. It can all be about attitude and mood and secrets not yet revealed. A comic has to have a payoff every single issue. So these characters are acting completely disingenuously to how they are on the TV show, where things are happening fast and extreme and big fights and big action. And it just, if you're a Dark Shadows fan, you kind of have to snag your head and go, I can't believe this is real. Oh, wow. <laughs> and the same... Same artist stuck throughout the entire thing, and I think they only changed writers one or two times. So it, it did get better with time, but those first eight issues are like the most god awful thing ever. And literally, I was I was rereading them, you know, in anticipation of this, and literally, I'm laughing out loud, falling off the couch, and my wife is looking at me like I'm a moron. She's like, <laughs> "What's going on?" And I'm like, "Barnabas." It's running again! And I'm just laughing! <laughs> it's so awful that it's amazing. Like, you, you can't... You could not intentionally be that bad. It's incredible. I believe you. <laughs> you said it's a gold key book? It's a gold key from 1969. I don't know why if, if I'd never heard of it or... I, I mean, look, I, I barely watched the show when I was a kid, but I knew of it, and it was very popular at the time. I didn't. I didn't realize that they made it into a comic book. But I mean, running from place to place when I mean they don't have to spend any money on special effects. All right. they have to do is draw him turning into a bat and flying. It doesn't make sense. I don't think they ever established in the um, TV show that he can turn into a bat, but that would have made so much more sense. But I mean, he's a vampire, isn't that the the standard power? Yeah, but I think because it's a soap opera, he's a much more he's a vampire with much more muted abilities. He doesn't seem to have any real powers. He just likes to kill people and doesn't die and goes to sleep during the day. And that's pretty much it. But he did suck blood about, and all that, that stuff, right? I mean, he needed yeah, to suck blood. Okay. Right. Well. It, it, it's more the style of it than it is an actual, like, real serious threat. They don't call it a vampire hunter who's got to take him down with a stake. You know, it's just, it's more subtle. 
that you surprised me with that one. I didn't even know they had a comic book of it. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually a huge Dark Shadows fan. Uh, Amber and I have the entire collection, and we've been you know watching the whole thing through. And when you go right from watching an episode to reading this comic book, it's ridiculous. What a what a letdown. <laughs> yep, but All in right. the best of possible ways. All right, you're number two, George. My number two, okay. Uh, number two is Son of Satan. It, introduced in Ghost Rider number one, 1973. He wasn't in costume yet. His actual first appearance as the Son of Satan with the character, the triton, the cape, and, and, and the spiky hair was in Marvel Spotlight number 12. Now, he's actually the son of actual Satan, which... Mm-hmm. It just, I just don't see it. I, I don't know how somebody could be a son of Satan and do good things. I, it just doesn't make sense. It's amazing that it was even allowed to happen in Marvel Comics because that then acknowledges the existence of a Satan, which then creates a lot of confusion, like, you know, what is Mephisto then and all this other stuff. And, you know, Mephisto predated the actual depiction of Satan in, in Ghost Rider and, and, and in those books. I think he came out in 1968, the Silver Surfer issue, the Silver yep. Surfer, the very first Silver Surfer uh, series. But number three, just, I think they played around with Mephisto. They never really told you he was the devil. He just came off like a supernatural, uh, a creature. But this one, when when he was introduced, Satan in, in the Marvel comic books introduced in, in a Marvel Spotlight Five with Ghost Rider, he was actually Satan, and they didn't really right. show him. They didn't show him directly. It would show him in shadows and in the distance, and you and, and it was like wow, you know, it's just a real one. But even so, I I had a problem with them depicting Satan in the comic book, and and I'm sorry if you're a son of Satan, you're not gonna do good things. I don't <laughs> care how I don't care how how they, how they want to write you. And again, a lot of the people, a lot of the characters and concepts on my Force Five list center around the fact that something evil can't do good things. So, right. So what's the explanation in comic as to why he does do good things? I mean, it, I think that they use him. He had an earthly mother and, you know, that, that old trope where half yeah. evil and half good. And he's trying to pull a balance or something or other. But it just didn't work for me. And it didn't hold my interest. Don't trash that trope too badly. You defend Marvel but in the new Teen Titans all the time. Oh, you t- oh, you're talking about uh, Trigon and, and Raven uh, and all that. It's same thing. I didn't love that either. I didn't love that concept either. But at least you could say he was just—he wasn't the devil. He was just an evil character from another dimension. And you know, but you're saying, that, I mean, and nothing good. There's nothing good in Satan at all. So you can't, you know, at least with Trigon, you can say, oh, he's just an alien, you know, doing bad things. But even so, always, again, I'm yeah. always a little hesitant when you bring in any kind of religious figures into a mainstream universe, uh, even mythological ones, because it, it's, I, I think it's lazy, first of all. And mm-hmm. I think it, it, it's problematic too, because like, okay, so you've got the Greek gods, you've got the Roman gods, you've got the Judeo-Christian God, you know, and, and Satan too. And how do they all exist together? And aren't they all powerful? And what's the superhero's role when you've got these huge things existing in their universe yeah i mean you know i i I don't know why i I guess look you got comic book companies existing for 60 70 years with thousands of writers coming on and leaving and no one has to care what the other person established or what they created (laughs) so 
we just keep making the story to get a paycheck, you know. So okay, what a, what my do number you say, two, sir? go. Uh, my, yes, sir. My <laughs> number two is probably one most people haven't heard of before, and I stumbled upon it, but I'm in love with its awfulness now, and that's movie <laughs> comics from 1939. Holy obscure, so, obscure comic, Batman. Go ahead. <laughs> so it's not that obscure. You can find copies of it on eBay like constantly. It was, but it's old. And really what it was, was in 1939, you know, and I think really starting during the Depression era, you had movie um, companies trying to find inventive new ways to get people to come in, you know, giving away dishes and things like that. And movie comics was an interesting concept in that it tried to use the comic medium to sort of create the original version of a home video. It wasn't trying to tell new stories. It was trying to tell abbreviated versions of the same movies and serials that were playing in the theaters that month. So come in, pay admission to see the movie. Whatever you missed or you want to watch again, here it is in this book. And it's a cool concept. Uh, and it, it tended to focus primarily on both horror and westerns, as I guess those were the two most popular you know, genres that were playing in 1939. But the reason it's on my list is the concept was great. The execution is so freaking weird. They wanted to make it feel more like an actual movie. So instead of doing a comic book based upon the movie, what they would do is they would take photographs of the actual actors and they would draw scenes and they'd paste the photographs into the scene. Or much more often, they would draw the character's body and then literally paste on a photographed picture of the character's head. Oh, wow. It's <laughs> such a strange thing to look at. And if you're a fan of Son of Frankenstein or um, Bella Lugosi's The Phantom Creeps, they were both done in movie comics. And watching that version of them is immensely weird and entertaining at the same time. I mean, how are the stories? Condensed. You know, they're, they're very, very simplified versions of it in black, white, and for some reason, red. But the, that weird mixing of drawings and photographs, not in a Kirby artistic way, but in a very, very, very lazy way, that is, is weird. such an odd thing to look at. Yeah, it sounds kind of weird. I mean, I, yeah, I, and I guess it's before, like, people got paid for everything as an actor, but you're taking somebody's likeness and you're putting right. it in a book and they're <laughs> getting nothing out of it. Yeah, that, that is definitely a problematic aspect of it as well. Unfortunately, these are such coveted comics today by movie collectors that they're priced out of the range that most people could pick one up and check it out. But if you're ever able to find... I don't know if it's in the public domain. If you can find a scan online, they're, uh, they're immensely... It, it's worth checking out just to say that you saw it. Well, I'll say I never heard of it. How did I mean, you got copies of this? Or is this something you have on digital? No, I, I, I have it through digital means that should remain nameless. <laughs> hey, I'm not calling the feds. Don't worry. <laughs> I, I try to buy something legitimately if I can, but if there's no way to get it within like a couple of hundred dollars, you know, at a certain point you have to get a little resourceful. I got you. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. <laughs> All right, George, I'm dying to know what is the number one worst Horror character or franchise you can think of. Okay, this is number one. Sorry, apologies to Spider-Man fans out there. But number one is Man-Wolf. Okay. Just the stupidest thing I ever heard. It's almost like 
this he he well, he, he was introduced in Spider-Man 124, 1973. Jerry Conway, Gil Kane. I don't know if they didn't know what to do with this character because they seems like James <laughs> James Jameson James, what's his name? J. Jonah Jameson. J. Jonah Jameson's son. The one that was the astronaut. He mm-hmm. goes to the moon and comes back with a pendant that he puts around his neck and it turns into a werewolf. I mean, this is just <laughs> dumb. And on top of that, didn't his son become like like seven different characters in <laughs> the time he's been a Spider-Man <laughs> character. Wasn't he like a, a, a like a person with super strength and then he became this and he became... It's like, it seems like they don't know what to do with the character or if they ran out of stories or something dumb. And it's just... He's a, a, a man-wolf. I, I just don't see it. You know, like, I don't even know what his powers was. He, he became a wolf like every night or once a month. I, I have no idea. And it's just, it seemed like Shame on Spider-Man and Stan Lee and everyone else for creating. Actually, it wasn't Stan Lee. Conway for creating a, a, a ridiculous character like that. <laughs> Honestly, I'm a little embarrassed. I didn't think to put him on my list because I completely agree. And you've got to wonder, who was sitting there in the 1970s going, gee, Spider-Man's our most popular character. What's the best spinoff we can possibly do? Oh, I know who the hottest character in Spider-Man is. J. Jonah Jameson. Let's do a comic about his son. Where did that even come yeah, from? Yeah, again, it, it, it's weird. I mean, I think the character still exists today as that man wolf. I mean, they call him Star Jeez. God or something else. But it's just, man, that's the best you could do with this. I mean, you and know, it was, it I, was, I, I don't know. It was one of those titles that got passed off to creator after creator after creator because nobody wanted it. And um, I, I know um, Doug mentioned, I think, two issues on it, and you know, went off on in interviews about why he hated writing it so much. It's, it's not even, like, if the premise wasn't stupid enough, he was given the restriction that nothing can happen in any given issue that will upset J. Jonah Jameson. Because then you can't have J. Jonah, J. Jonah Jameson appearing in a Spider-Man comic the next issue and be totally normal and have fans going, why isn't he upset about Man-Wolf? Well, they didn't so, worry about upsetting me. <laughs> right. <laughs> and it but sure like, did. <laughs> How do you do a story each month where a dude's son is a werewolf and not have him get upset? Ugh. I, I don't know. I just again I know Shame on Marvel. There there are some I know there are there is a very loyal small there there is a small loyal group of fans who love Manwolf. Um and they they love I the writer who came after um Doug Mensch, who just died I think last year. I can't think of his name right now, but apparently what he did with Manwolf was significantly better. But you can't miss the fact that Manwolf was being published at the same time as Marvel is publishing Werewolf by Night. It's like, that, why offer both when one is clearly superior to the other? Yeah, I, I, I didn't understand that part either. Again, it, it, and why did I have to use J. Jonah Jameson's son? It's like they, it became like a different character every yeah. half, a, half a year or something. What a weird and, and, and choice, you just man. said that you just <laughs> you just said that there's some uh, people that really like the character. Well, I gotta address yeah. those. I gotta address those people right now. You're wrong. I'm still trying to figure out who the heck that was. David Anthony Kraft. David Anthony. He he was interesting. Yeah, was allegedly his his run on on Man Wolf is better. I have not been brave enough to read it. <laughs> <laughs> I remember very early George Perez did that series. Oh, I'd rather forget that. That's awful. I'm so sorry. (laughs) You have to start somewhere. (laughs) Woo! 
So that's mine. So what's your All number right. one, sir? I, my number one, I this might not be a surprise to some people. It's not going to be as obscure as movie comics or Dark Shadows or any of that. I think anybody who knows truly, truly bad horror comics must have been waiting for the 1966 Dell version of Dracula to make this list. And if, if you well don't done. know what it is, if you, if you don't know, this was at a time... They'd had a Dracula title in 1961 that had already like died out from lack of popularity. And someone had the brilliant idea, well, people like monsters, and we have the rights to them, but they like superheroes even more, so let's make all of our monsters into superheroes. So you had Frankenstein Monster was a superhero for like two issues, um, Wolfman was a superhero for an issue or two, and the longest running of those for I think a whopping six issues was Dracula. And I don't yeah. know where to start what, with this what one, George. What was up with that? What was up with that? <laughs> the, I, I did see those books. I I, I didn't get it. Why you know, the weirdest guys? part is it earned reprints years later. Like They came back like six years later and reprinted the Dracula run. It was so in demand, I guess. I don't because know, you but... demanded it. <laughs> <laughs> because one person somewhere demanded it. So uh, I, I don't know where to start with this one. Um Let's begin with the fact that it's the same lame um, explanation as Morbius had. That it's it's a doctor in mixing chemicals who accidentally injects himself or swallows it or something, and suddenly he can turn into a bat and has radar vision. He also just <laughs> happens to be the great, 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 great descendant of the original Dracula. Just happens to be. And so the best part is he gets these powers and his immediate... Reaction is, I have to use these powers to fight crime to redeem my family name. Uh. Right off the bat. And, geez, where do I go with this? So, the villain in the first issue, his name is actually Evil. Spelled E-V-A-L. That's how lazy they are. The villain's <laughs> name is Evil. And if you... God, I, this is the sad thing about doing a podcast... I'm going to have to include it in the, in the YouTube version of it. You have to just look at this guy and understand how bad it is. It, his, his costume is, it, it's like they were trying to decide, okay, how do we make a guy who's a bat but also a superhero look cool? And then immediately realize they're about to get sued. And they're like, well, he can't look like Batman at all. So how do we make a superhero who looks like a bat but doesn't look like Batman? So no cape. Um, his cowl literally looks like he took a pair of red underwear and tied it around his head. And oh boy. he's got like this all purple costume with another pair of underwear over the pants, of course, because that's what superheroes do. And he's got a belt buckle with a giant bat on it. And that's his costume. He looks I remember like a, that book. <laughs> it, it, it's like a Mexican wrestler did too much acid one day. Like it's just, I don't know how else to explain it. And my gosh, the origin story is so amazing because... Not only is the character so incredibly dull you want to smack yourself, but once he decides to become a superhero, they wanted to, I guess, be more realistic. So instead of him suddenly have all these powers, he can turn into a bat, he's got radar vision, and they spend page upon page upon page watching this guy train to fight crime. And, like, we see him do push-ups. <laughs> and then sit-ups. And then we have a panel where he climbs ropes. And then a panel where he's eating healthy food and going, hmm, this is better than I thought. It's like, it is Holy so... Holy mackerel. 
painful. I would literally rather go out and train to fight crime than watch this guy do this. It was so awful. And the art's not any better. And Frankenstein and, and Wolfman were bad too, but Dracula has a, whole, a special place in my heart for being one of the most god-awful comics I've ever read, period, let alone the worst horror comic. Jeff, is it wrong that I want to read it now? I really want to read it now. Oh, <laughs> I, I, have, I, I just want to go out and seek this thing out now. George, I pull out the entire run every Halloween and try to get my kids to read it. <laughs> I oh, literally man. went out and dressed up. I actually recreated the costume one Halloween and dressed <laughs> up as that. And nobody knew who I was, but I was so happy with myself. Oh, brother. <laughs> you know, so, it, that, that's the definition of so bad is good. So I'm right. going to have to go look for this one. <laughs> Dracula 1966 Dell Comics. You got to do it. Yeah, I have it in my head right now. That, that look. Yeah. Wow. Be bad. Be bad. Be bad of the big green dragon that sits on your doorstep. He eats little boys. Bobby Duck Tales. A little bonus to celebrate our favorite bad comics of all time by sharing one of my favorite bad movies of all time. <laughs> That's uh, Bela Lugosi in Glen or Glenda, or I Led Two Lives by the famous Ed Wood. You kill me, man. You kill me. <laughs> you put up with me, and I appreciate that so much. Hey, you have to just the right amount of corniness. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> that was also my incredibly strange way of apologizing to you all, because like any good horror franchise installment, this one ends on a cliffhanger. We will uh, be continuing with our countdown of our top five favorite horror characters and properties in two weeks' time. That episode will drop on October 16th, where George and I will continue our conversation then. But until then, if you're looking for more content, don't forget the conversation never stops. It continues at ClassicComics.org, where you can discuss individual episodes, including this one. And I can't wait to see George and I get roasted for our picks. So, you know, if you feel like, I don't know, maybe yelling at someone for picking on Man-Thing, ClassicComics.org is the place to go. Or if you want to yell at me about my opinions on Phantom Stranger, or maybe there's actually a second person out there somewhere who's actually read movie comics from 1939. If you have anything to say, please come and join us there. And if you really like what you're hearing, don't forget you can always become a Patreon member by going to patreon.com, the Classic Comics Forum. And uh, there's some really cool perks there, including getting access to the hidden special... And we have so much great bonus content there, including um, really silly pictures of George and I, extra materials, bonus background content, inside updates, and a lot of really great conversation with all of our really loyal fans there who keep it going. Uh, there's always something new there every day. I really enjoy what we talk about behind the scenes, so consider joining us. The CCF In-Depth is produced in partnership with Classic Comics Forum at ClassicComics.org. Special thanks to Scott Harris King, the creator of the original Classic Comics Forum podcast with George and I have 
since Run Into the Ground. Um, thanks to Paul King, who created, performs, and wrote the music that you hear for our theme song, Beginning and Closing. And also a very special thanks to our Patreon members, the folks who really keep it going and also entertain us with endless behind-the-scenes conversation. That includes Bill Sinclair, Marty Golia, Michael Gallagher, Paolo Sakedu, and Tim Schneider. We appreciate you guys so very much. Thanks for all your support and thanks for all the fun. Don't forget to visit us at classiccomics.org or find us on Facebook. Happy Halloween. Comics.org